Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And it's time for another classic episode of Tech Stuff. This episode originally published on December 19th, 2012. It is titled, How Motion Capture Works. And I love mocap when it's done well. When mocap's done well, you can get some phenomenal performances translated into different types of media, including video games and CGI films. It is an, uh, an amazing tool. And Chris Paulette and I break down how it works. So let's listen in on this classic episode. So today we thought we'd talk a bit about a type of performance that is relatively new as far as performance goes. Uh, something that uh, I guess this falls into our movie making category, but it's also something that's been used in things like video games and, and other forms of media as well. Uh, motion capture. Yeah, you'll even see it in uh, in sports. Mm-hmm. They've been uh, talking about this for a while now, and if you've ever seen the uh, making of a a video or a, a game, um, or you know even in sports rehabilitation in medicine, um, they where the people are wearing dots, little white dots all over their clothing and and sometimes their faces and hands. Um, that's probably what they were doing either that or they just really like stickers yeah yeah i mean who doesn't i remember being very competitive in elementary school in order to get a sticker and also this is a tangent but a true story i got a gold star sticker uh just last month awesome from tracy uh, the head of our our site so anyway, um, yeah, motion capture. Uh, actually, there are a lot of different terms that you can use uh, in this in this realm. Uh, motion capture or mocap is probably the one I hear the most frequently, but also things like performance animation, performance capture, digital puppetry, real-time animation, uh, motion scanning, which is really more of a proprietary thing. But these are the concept is pretty much the same across the board. The idea is to capture the physical representation of something and then convert it into a virtual format. So uh, usually it's something that's in motion, but it's not always that way. Uh, since, you know, we're talking about motion capture, that makes sense. But you're trying to get, uh, uh, translate something that is moving through real space into a digital format. And uh, there's different ways to do this. I mean, you could do it the really hard way, which is where you study something and then you try to recreate it uh, either by hand or by or digitally, you know, by by programming uh, movements into an animated figure. But uh, this is an idea that kind of takes that step out where you are directly porting the movements uh, something is making within physical space into virtual space. Yeah, there was an early technique, um, and then of course this is this is all an attempt to to get as real as you can with with animation, um, and one of the uh, the earlier techniques that that was sort of a predecessor to this is called rotoscoping. Uh, Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings had a lot of rotoscoping in it. Well, what happens is um, in in that case is a real. Uh, a real human being goes through the motions and they act through the parts that yeah. are that you're going to see in the animation and they shoot that on film yes yes and then the uh, the animators basically are looking at that and are drawing 
more or less on top of that. They yeah. see a projection of that, and they are drawing uh, the animation over that to capture the way that person's body looks. And um, this this was uh, famous. You know, the Disney studios were famous for this. We're studying models, and then they would do uh, the rotoscoping technique to to try to make their uh, their characters look more realistic. Yeah, and there are some artists, like I said, like Bakshi, who famously would leave the film image as part of the animation so that you had this this weird effect where the thing you were looking at was part, uh, well, quote-unquote, real image and part animated image, uh, which was – it was an artistic choice. Uh, definitely something that was not meant to, to necessarily fool you into thinking, oh, well, that animated character is moving very realistically. It was done on purpose. But it was um, – that's what I always think of when I think rotoscoping is I just think of – the different Bakshi films, but in particular, I think of his Lord of the Rings uh, adaptation, um, which, as I recall, ended halfway through The Two Towers. So anyway, that's just bringing back memories. But yeah, that was that was sort of a, a precursor to motion capture. Uh, motion capture itself, there are many different ways of achieving this. Uh, for example, there were uh, – it's not used very frequently now, but there were uh, mechanical systems where you had sensors that would be attached to specific joints – uh, that would uh, relay movement, and usually it was kind of like a like, like an actor would wear a physical metallic skeleton type device that would have these sensors attached to the various joints, and as the actor moved, the sensors would register the the changes in motion uh, in this uh, metallic skeleton, and uh, and that would be relayed through usually cables to a computer system that would uh, measure these or, or take the measurements from the sensors and translate it into movements for the virtual character. Uh, it's very limiting, this particular system. Uh, there was another one that was a little more uh, versatile, which was used electromagnets. And in this case, you talked about uh, uh, sensors that would be attached by really thick cables that, again, would go to a computer, and there'd be a magnetic field. And by moving through this magnetic field, uh, the sensors would pick up alterations. You know, it, it would, you know, moving through a magnetic field, you would get little uh, electrical uh, changes. We, we've talked a lot about electricity and magnetism uh, in general. Moving through uh, – uh, fluctuating a magnetic field can induce electricity through a conductor or putting electricity through a conductor can induce a magnetic field. So anyway, by moving these sensors through the magnetic field, it would create these electronic fluctuations that would then be measured and translated into movement. And again, this was a, a fairly effective way of picking up movements. It actually – didn't use as many points of contact as the optical systems that we mostly think about. That was the kind that Chris was referring to early with all the dots on the person. Those systems tend to have lots and lots and lots of points of reference. The electromagnet ones didn't tend to have as many points of reference because the uh, the software side of it, because you know we do have a hardware and a software side to this, the software side would assume that the joints that these sensors were attached to behaved the way they normally would in humans, in that they don't have complete freedom of movement. Most of us are not 
multi-jointed in every joint. So we can't, you know, there, we have a limitation on how far we can move in certain directions with these various joints. So taking that into account, you didn't have to have sensors all over the body. Uh, you would just have them in a few places, which was good considering that there were these thick cables attached to the sensors. And then once you were done moving, then the all that data would get, be captured within the, the system and could then be uh, rendered into animation, although this was also a way that you could do real-time animation or digital puppetry. Uh, it's not that different from controlling a video game character with a controller. It's sort of the same principle, except in this case, the, the video game controller, instead of it being something you hold in your hands, it's something you were actually wearing. And uh, I've seen plenty of instances of this. If you've ever seen Turtle Talk with Crush over at Disney, that's what they use. They use a digital, you know, they use digital puppetry. And yeah. it's awesome, by the way. I love that. Well, it uh, it, it would also seem that um, you would need to be aware of where those cables were going. Yes. And it would it would also affect the way that you would move. You wouldn't move as naturally yeah, if no, you were wearing something like that as if you were, you know, unencumbered by by that. Which yeah. um, sort of I think would lend itself to to an upgrade, which is uh, I think why they were so uh, keen on, on the, the new optical system. Optical system. Well, it's also also that's very true. It did limit what you could do. It could lim- it would limit your movement. I mean, when you've got these big cables attached to you, obviously you can't just move freely within a space. Um, so it did put some limitations on you. There are limitations to the optical systems too, but we'll get into that. The uh, the other problem was that the sampling rate for the magnetic systems was not as high as it is for optical systems. And by sampling rate, what I mean is that this the entire system as a whole is taking little measurements of uh, from the sensors, of you know, the orientation of the sensors within the space. And it does that several times every second. But the sample rate of the magnetic motion capture systems was much lower than what it was for than what it would be if you were to use an optical system. So you're not getting data as frequently. I mean, it's still several times a second, but it's not as precise as the optical system. So not only were you limited in the kind of movements you could make, because you had these major cables attached to you, but also you couldn't get really minute, precise measurements on every kind of movement. So it wasn't good for things like sports. So, you know, something like throwing a pitch in baseball, there are a lot of movements, little tiny motions that are involved in that. I mean, anyone who's watched slow motion footage of a professional baseball pitcher throwing a pitch, you can see that there are some incredibly subtle movements that are involved in that. And uh, and it takes place over a very short period of time. I mean, it's a very fast thing to, to, to measure. Using the magnetic motion capture system, you would probably, one, slow the person down because they, they have all these cables attached to them, and two, not get enough data to give an accurate representation of what had happened in the virtual format. So if you were to, say, create a, uh, a video game, a baseball video game, the pitcher would not necessarily behave Properly, if all you did was directly port the data you got from the motion capture into the game. Yeah, another drawback of the mechanical systems like that too is that that it's um, 
it's the kind of system that not only is cumbersome and, and inaccurate, but it has to be calibrated fairly frequently. Um, and, you know, there, there's, a, there's some work that you can do with this, but the optical systems that they began to introduce, um, you know, generally became an, an upgrade. Um, the only the, – there is one big uh, advantage that the, the mechanical systems do have, though, and that is that uh, light – the lighting will not necessarily interfere with the different points of motion that are captured by the mechanical system. Yeah. Um, and that can be an issue with the optical systems, um, you know, because that's that's why um, they will be wearing the, the people, the actors who will be um, uh, having their motions captured by the system will be wearing, you know, those bright dots so that the, the computer can pick up on that. And at the beginning in these, these early systems, there were only so many points, uh, action points that they could capture. Um, they were very limited in what they could do at first, but still, you know, somewhat of an upgrade over the mechanical. Yeah, it also limited what you could have in the background, obviously, because you could not have anything that was going to be of a similar shade. Uh, you know, usually where you talk about a reflective white substance used as the um, the points of of uh, uh, articulation. So the little light, white stickers is like. What you were saying, Chris, uh, you couldn't have anything like that in the background because it would confuse the optical system. So that's why a lot of these motion capture scenes are shot against a blue screen or green screen. It's so that the background does not in any way interfere with the motion capture. So if you've ever seen behind the scenes footage of the Lord of the Rings movies is a great example with uh, Andy Serkis as Gollum. Or Smeagol, if you prefer, but uh, he he's wearing you know a tight like skin tight suit with these little white uh, circles all over it. Those are the points that the cameras track to create the the performance of Gollum slash Smeagol. So the performance is something that's being created not only by the actor uh, but also the animators because not. We should also point out that the the motion capture stuff rarely is motion capture uh, completely uh, – there, there's, there's rarely a moment where you don't have an animator step in and tweak it somehow. Like uh, uh, you don't normally have someone create a physical performance and that physical performance is completely without any tinkering – represented in the final product. I mean, it, it can happen. There are instances of it, but it's more frequently uh, something where the motion capture performance goes to the animator who can then tweak things if the performance is not exactly what it needs to be, which is kind of nice. You don't necessarily have that luxury with flesh and blood actors. I'm going to stop motion capture in mid-motion right now so that we can take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Well, um, especially with the earlier systems, especially the uh, electromagnetic systems, uh, those were really noisy—not literally noisy, but but digital noise. They yeah. weren't—they weren't really highly accurate. Um, the optical systems are are far cleaner and give a more accurate representation. But you know, that's it sort of falls in the realm of artistic license, I would think, um, where they need to go in and, and make subtle adjustments to make it look uh, the way they want it to look. Yeah. I should also point out, you just reminded me of something else, another drawback to the electromagnet systems, which was you couldn't have anything metal on the set. 
because it would interfere with that magnetic field and give incorrect readings to the system. So your your virtual character would not move in the same way as the physical one because there would be some interference in that sense. So your set couldn't have anything metal in it. Uh, the props didn't shouldn't have anything metal in them. So that, that limited you as well. So this, each system has its own limitations. Uh, getting back to the optical one, um, one of the other things you have to remember is that in order to really capture a, a, a physical object moving through 3D space and to replicate that in virtual space, you need multiple cameras in that system because a single camera, assuming that's a regular video or film camera, something that does not have 3D capability, pointing that at an object, it's creating a two-dimensional image of something that's moving in three dimensions. The camera can't necessarily tell uh, where movements are happening within the depth frame of of that of that image, right? So if someone's moving in such a way where, let's say, they're moving their head where it'd be bobbing closer to the camera, uh, you, unless the size of the uh, the sensors is such that something that subtle could be picked up by the camera system, you would lose that information. Uh, so what you need are multiple cameras on the same object so that you can compare that data from the multiple angles to tell how this object is really moving through this three-dimensional space. So it's kind of like the idea of having uh, parallax with two eyes. You know, our eyes are offset, so by looking at an object, we can tell how far away it is in part because of parallax. Uh, uh, we also have other visual cues that tell us about how far something is, you know, things like how tall it is in relation to where we are, that kind of thing, or how tall it is in relation to other objects that are within our frame of vision. But parallax is very important. Same sort of thing with these optical systems. You would have multiple cameras set up to try and capture the uh, information that's going on in the, the frame so that you could tell exactly how it's moving through that three-dimensional space. Yeah, it seems like... Um in order to capture the, the correct perspective, you need that additional information, even though you may not necessarily see it. Um, it helps the, the animator do that. And the optical system, too, uh, allows you to work with more than one actor, Yep. Um, which was not really an option with some of the earlier systems. So, in other words, you can, although it requires more equipment, you know, just simply out of necessity, the optical system is really affording the animators a an opportunity to use a greater amount of information, um, both you know from the different the different points of um, data they're getting from a single actor, but from multiple actors on the set simultaneously, which enables them to to create more complex work. Right, and uh, this also gives us a, a good example of how the optical motion capture systems are a passive system because you have these sensors you're wearing that are not necessarily well not even sensors. They're they're reflective markers that you're wearing. They aren't connected to any sort of uh, electronic components at all. Versus the active systems like the uh, electromagnetic one where you are generating uh, data by moving through a magnetic field and you have these big cables attached to it. Uh, with the optical motion capture systems, another thing that's kind of interesting, I think, is that a lot of, the, at least the early ones, the cameras would have uh, infrared LEDs 
uh, so emitters really that we're emitting infrared light. So that's outside our our visible spectrum. We cannot see infrared light. But uh, by putting an infrared filter on the camera, you could have the camera pick up reflections of infrared light, and that was a way of helping to identify the sensors that you had put on the actor. The actors, uh, the sensors would be reflective specifically so that the infrared light would reflect back toward the camera and give the most accurate rendering of what's going on at any given moment within uh, a scene. So, um, yeah, it's another way of making sure that the data being captured is as precise as possible. I mean, that is, of course, the goal, is to try and recreate the physical movements as truthfully as you possibly can, uh, given all the limitations involved. Yeah, and if you're looking for a a real-life, easy-to-find uh, an example of this, you would look no farther than your uh, local video game store um, because the Xbox Kinect uh, uses very much that that exact uh, form of technology. It is using an infrared emitter, mm-hmm. um, and it has cameras that it uses to pick it up, uh, the information, pick the information up that is coming back from uh, what is being reflected around the room. And anybody who uh, who has one is also aware that uh, lighting is very much an issue. Um, the way the room is lit affects the information that the Kinect is able to refer to the Xbox. Now, it's not, uh, while it is sophisticated, it is not as sophisticated as the kind of equipment that they might use in making a movie or making a video game, but it is uh, very, very similar technology. And in, in some ways, I would argue that it's more sophisticated than some of those early uh, systems simply because it is able to capture a lot of information um, whereas, you know, the very early optical systems were only using a, a handful of uh, data points. Right. So um, it's it's uh, a pretty neat device, um, you know, not only used for gaming now. The hacker community has fallen in love with it, too, because it can do so much and can be used for so many things and is, you know, fairly inexpensive. Yeah, yeah. The cool thing about the Kinect is that uh, rather than have to – obviously, if you've, if you've ever played – an Xbox with a Kinect, you know, you don't have to go out and buy a snug bodysuit covered in reflective markers in order to play. I mean, it doesn't hurt, but uh, you know, if you're if you can pull that look off, there are very few of us who can. I count myself among them, but uh, you don't have to do that because what it's doing is it's actually projecting essentially a grid uh, in infrared light. So you can't see the grid, but it's being projected into the room, and then when you move. Uh, within the space, you are deforming that grid. You know the camera that's picking up the uh, the reflections of that infrared light can detect when the grid's being deformed by a, a physical object interrupting the grid. So as you move, you interrupt different parts of the grid, and it can start to interpret those as motions and commands. It's not uh, it's not as precise as what we're talking about with the optical systems that are used in movies and video games. Uh, to, to create them, that is, not to, to play them. Um, it's not as precise as those, but it also has other elements that help uh, balance that out. Like it has uh, regular optical cameras that can uh, have some other software that aids it in recognizing things like facial recognition software, which does not necessarily rely upon that infrared grid. It relies more on the traditional camera uh, functions, but has the software included that lets the 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 programs within recognize who is standing in front of it. 
So that combination uh, increases the precision, which, of course, is very important whenever you're playing a game. I mean, anyone who's played any sort of game where you're using a faulty controller or it's just a system that hasn't been fully uh, – it's not finished yet. It's just in prototype stage or whatever. You may have noticed that, uh, that it could be very frustrating to try and control something where the actual controller is not uh, as responsive as you would hope. It's um, – not a fun experience. But anyway, that is kind of related to this whole motion uh, capture technology. Um, the, I'm sorry, well, you, you look like you have something to say. Well, no, I was, I was going to say that, um, you know, we really hadn't, uh, other than my earlier statement about sports, um, you know, we've, we've been talking about it in, in entertainment, uh, entertainment uh, about the, the – uh, ability to capture motion to make characters more realistic, and um, that that is exactly uh, what they want to do when they are using this in sports medicine. Um, Jonathan alluded to earlier the difficulty in uh, in capturing all the little subtle motions that go into um, into a um, major league baseball player's pitching, um, and um, you know when somebody when somebody gets hurt. Um, sometimes they go through uh, extensive surgery. Uh, the Tommy John procedure is, is uh, famous. You know, they, they do a ligament transplant to to uh, help rebuild a pitcher's elbow, and that can really throw off um, the mechanics of a pitcher's motion. So they use this motion capture technology to really get an idea of how um, how that person is is throwing, going about the mechanics of their typical gameplay, and and that's exactly the same kind of thing that they're doing when they create these very uh, realistic sports games. Um, but uh, you know, in this case, they're using it for sports medicine to see if they can uh, they can go back and recreate some of the um, the motions that made them so successful before they were injured. Now, um, ironically, in in uh, entertainment purposes, especially video. Um, you can get too realistic. Um, the uh, Japanese professor Masahiro Mori is famous for his Uncanny Valley, mm-hmm. um, which has been used in uh, ro- used as a robotics term uh, for a, a robot that looks so much and, and moves so much like a human that it um, it creeps us out. It looks a little. T- too realistic, and I can think of. We're actually recording this in December of 2012, and um, one of the movies that comes on about this time of year is The Polar Express, which yes. uh, is is it's a nightmare known as <laughs> loved and reviled both for its story and its um, and the way that they use motion capture because the characters in there are so realistic they're downright creepy. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where they are almost but not quite able to pass for. A real person, so that there's just enough off about them to be unsettling. Now, I, this does bring up something else that's kind of interesting. We have an article on HowStuffWorks.com about motion scan technology, which is, as I said earlier, a proprietary technology. It's it's more specific than just motion capture. It's specifically meant to capture facial motion activity. So when an actor is speaking, when they're delivering lines, the way that they uh, furrow their brow or move their eyes or smile or they give a facial tick, anything like that, this system is designed to pick that up so that it can be recreated virtually in a game. And it was used 
to great effect, in my opinion, in uh, L.A. Noir. Now, L.A. Noir was a video game that came out in 2011, and it was a uh, game in which you played a, well, you played a couple different characters, but the, the one you played for most of the game, spoiler alert, uh, was, uh, was a, a police detective. And you're kind of rising through the ranks uh, in L.A. Uh, during the uh, uh, early part of the 20th century. And you, it's, it's, um, it's notable in that you are... Uh, uh, you're spending most of the game looking at people's reactions. You know, the idea behind L.A. Noir was a, a, a new type of video game where you would interrogate characters uh, throughout your investigations, and as you interrogate them, you had to watch the characters' facial reactions to kind of get an idea of whether the character was trying to be evasive or if they were telling the truth. And you would do things like watch for their eyes. And if they weren't able to maintain eye contact, that was a an indication that perhaps they were being less than truthful. Or if they would, you know, twitch their mouth or clench their jaw, these would be little little hints that perhaps there's more going on than what they're letting on to. And obviously, if your gameplay depends upon trying to determine whether or not a virtual character is telling the truth, you have to be able to represent those facial expressions as closely to to reality as possible, or else the game does not work. So they use this motion scan technology, and the way that they did this was that they had a very brightly lit studio that had lights uh, trained on an actor from just about every angle. And the purpose of that was to try and eliminate shadows because any sort of shadows you would have there would, of course, affect the actual capture. Uh, it was really all about the light. And they used 32 high-definition cameras. So think about that. 32 high-definition cameras just to capture an actor's facial performance. Like, that's it. There, there, there's no other movement. The, the actor is se- seated at the time. And uh, and had to remain as still as possible and just do all the acting with their face, which for anyone out there who's done any sort of acting, you know, that's incredibly challenging because actors are trained to use their whole body when they are performing, making a performance. They're trained to to really think about movement uh, I mean, if you're if you're really serious about acting, you've probably taken movement classes, and to suddenly have all of that taken away, and all of your acting is restricted to just your face, it's pretty. That's pretty dramatic. It's tough to do, but anyway, that's what the actors had to do. They had to sit down and and restrict their acting to just their facial uh, expressions without it going like over the top crazy, because that would be just as distracting as not enough performance at all. And these 32 cameras were paired up, so 16 pairs of cameras. There's a, technically, there was a 33rd camera as well that the director used to watch the scene and give directions to the actors. Um, but these these pairs of cameras were trained on all these different angles of the face in order to capture the, that performance so that in the virtual world, they could recreate it accurately, which to me is phenomenal. And and apparently the way the system works is you get that virtual version of the person's face and head almost instantly, which is kind of creepy, but also awesome. <laughs> 
Chris Paulette and I have a little bit more to say about how motion capture works, but first let's take another quick break. It's funny too that they uh, they use that many cameras in the creation of a video game because um, uh, as elsewhere in that article it notes that um, um, Circus who was playing Gollum or yep. Smeagol, yep. um only had twenty five only had twenty five cameras yeah. on on him uh, but in doing so they were able to uh, to create roughly you know. 10,000 different kind or identify 10,000 different kinds of facial movements that they could use in in animating the character on screen. So um, clearly, uh, you know, this is very, very high tech and uh, painstaking procedure to do. But in, in doing so, they can they can create very, very realistic movements. Yeah, there's a lot of number crunching involved. And, and frankly, the the part that takes place after you've captured the data is can be dramatically different from one case to the next. In some cases, you may have already created uh, an animated figure pretty much from start to finish. You might not have completely put textures on it or or, or something, but uh, you might have essentially the 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 way the character is going to look in the finished product. Uh, and then you just map it to the movements that you captured, and it's and it, there it goes. And in other cases, you might see that what they do is they capture the motions, and then you essentially have what looks like a a very primitive stick figure skeleton that moves in the way that the actor moved, but there's no definition. There's no character there yet. And uh, you may have animators who build the character somewhat based upon the way the actor moved through the space, so that... Perhaps the character's design is not finalized until you've captured that that performance, and the performance helps guide the design of the character. It all depends on the uh, the specific technology that's being used and the preference of the crew that's that's designing whatever it is that they're making, whether it's a video game or a movie, TV show, commercial, whatever it happens to be. Uh, in the case of digital puppetry, obviously you would already have the the full character realized so that just by using whatever control mechanism happens to be there, um, you would be able to make the puppet move in real time. Uh, otherwise, it's not really puppetry. Um, and again, that's sort of like the – if you've been to that, that turtle talk thing I talked about the, the at Disney World or Disneyland, um, I'm sure there are other similar ones. I think Monsters, Inc., Laugh Factory has a similar uh, setup where you've got a digital character on a screen that can react in real time to things that are happening within the physical environment. So they interact with the audience. Like they'll specifically single people out and chat with people in the audience. And um, to to kids, this is amazing. I mean, it's a cartoon character acting in real time. It's a real person now. Uh, to adults, it's fascinating because they're like, how the heck did that happen? <laughs> um but yeah, that's it's all based on this same sort of technology, um, and it's it's really interesting to me to see how the field is evolving over time because things like the Kinect show that we are adapting the same sort of technology in different ways. We're using different implementations to essentially do the same thing, and that perhaps we will get to a point where uh, we won't have to worry about all the sensors so much. Um, you, you can maybe have an actor who's not completely coded in stickers, 
perform and and you could capture all that data without having to worry about you know tracking these little dots that might be something that we see in the future i mean the motion scan is kind of like that because i before motion scan with that facial acting uh uh technology uh whenever i saw anyone who was having their face tracked for a performance they always were wearing those tiny little white stickers all over their face to track. I mean, we've got a lot of muscles in our face. There's something like 19 muscles or something that you have to track. So um, you would have all these little dots on your face to track those motions. Well, with motion scan, you don't need those anymore. So uh, maybe we'll see something like that. Of course, that would really depend upon perhaps the lighting, which could – if you're shooting a, a virtual character that's next to real characters like in The Lord of the Rings, uh, real being, I guess – you know, your mileage may vary. I mean, they're hobbits. But anyway, uh, when you're with, next to real people, clearly you can't mess with the lighting too much or it'll just make the whole scene look strange. Speaking of strange, um, while you might think that the uh, the techniques used in, in motion capture, um, you know, bringing film into it, uh, you know, adding a lot of advancement to, to film um, – Basically, uh, some people sort of regard this as cheating. Yeah, I uh, I did some research that that indicated that um, although some other types of animation are considered you know considered more artful, um, motion capture is sort of not everyone, but some people say, well, you know, it's it's not Oscar worthy because you were using these computer aided animation techniques that that really. Um, uh, are simulating human motion and it's just it's just not real. And uh, the argument that I've seen used against it is, well, you consider rotoscoping okay, why don't you consider motion capture, which is a a kind of descendant from this technology? Why why isn't that okay to uh, you know to consider for um, quality and, and and for awards? But um, apparently, it's a it's sort of a hot topic among. Um, among movie makers. Yeah, I, I can see why an animator, a traditional animator, or even a, a computer animator, I mean, that's closer and closer to becoming traditional already, but either a hand-drawn animation or a computer animation, uh, someone who goes through the trouble of animating these things and, and doing a lot of this work uh, by hand seems like it's the wrong term, but, but personally going through and creating these performances, I can see where they might feel that way. Um, I have a completely different perspective on it. Of course, I'm not an animator, so that's part of it. But I think of it as creating a performance. And in the sense of creating a performance, I think it's a completely legitimate tool because you're still relying on uh, an actor to create a, an, a performance that, that, that people will relate to, whether it's uh, a character that you're supposed to love or hate or fear that all is is dependent upon the animator and the actor and and several other people working to create this this performance and uh, I don't see anything wrong with that that to me is a completely legitimate form of, of uh, creating the art of entertainment so um, I mean I do understand from an artistic perspective where some people could have a problem with it but but if you take a bigger picture look at not not just you know what technique you're using but the end goal of creating whether you want to call it art or not but creating something that has an impact to the viewer or player in the case of a video game uh, I think that's more important 
But then again, I'm like I said, I'm not an animator, so I don't have that kind of emotional attachment. You know, I'm not invested in it in that way. So um, I, I'd be curious to hear what our listeners think if they think that the, is motion capture is that cheating? Is it uh, uh, is it as Red versus Blue would have you say a legitimate strategy? Uh, what What do you think? What do you consider motion capture? You should let us know. Yeah, I um I, I do see where um it, it might make a uh, traditional animator concerned, but I don't I don't really think it diminishes their um their artistic value to yeah. to um to a work whatever it may be that they are working on. Um, and there are certain times I'm sure where uh, you would argue that using these techniques is completely inappropriate to what they they might do. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's always uh, a concern when um, you start saying, "Well, the machine can do it, and we don't really need people to do it." So get out. Yeah, I don't think that's ever going to be um, always the, fully the case because you're going to have certain characters within movies that are going to be so different from the way humans are built, so to speak, that that uh, that motion capture would not be practical. For example, like let's say that the character that you're creating has uh, really super long arms, and you know you got an actor who's pretty lanky, but but their arms are not as long as the character's arms. Uh, if you were just to do a direct translation of the actor's movements into the animation, it might not look right because the character has different dimensions. Their body is built differently than the actor. And so without tweaking it, without having an animator go in there and adjust this and make it look correct uh, compared to what the, you know, the, the vision is for the movie, it doesn't come out correctly. It doesn't look right. So uh, I, I think there's very little risk of motion capture ever taking that away completely. Plus, there is something to you know, creating a, a performance through traditional animation that you know, it does feel differently the motion capture, but that's not a bad thing. Like, it, it just depends upon the the vision of the director and what the tone of the, the piece needs to be. And that wraps up another classic episode of Tech Stuff. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, feel free to get in touch with me. You can send an email to techstuff at howstuffworks.com, or you can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. You can pop on over to our website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. You're going to find a link to our archive where we have every episode we've ever published right there, searchable, so you can go check that out. And you can also find a link to our online store, where every purchase you make goes to help the show. We greatly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 